Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. New Zealand is one of the Earth's newest landmasses. Its geologic history is incredibly dynamic. New Zealand, close to its modern form, rose up from the waves around 20 million years ago. Compare that with Australia, where you can find rocks that are 3.8 billion years old. But though today's New Zealand came to be around 20 million years ago, its geological history spans back a bit farther. 83 million years ago, the Zealandia continent was about half as big as Australia. And as it moved away from Australia, it sank beneath sea level. And around 25 million years ago, it was mostly submerged. Then, 20 million years ago, relatively recent in Earth's geological history, the two tectonic plates that modern-day New Zealand rests atop began to have friction, and New Zealand began to rise once again above the ocean surface. Just 5 million years ago, the North and South Islands separated. What kind of animals lived on some of the Earth's freshest land? Well, New Zealand's isolation and recent rise above water meant that most creatures wouldn't be able to get there. Land mammals would be unable to swim the distance from Australia. Snakes couldn't make the oceanic journey. Australian insects wouldn't have made the journey either. But birds, birds could make the flight. And over time, New Zealand became an aviary haven full of all sorts of birds. Without large mammal predators, many of the birds evolved over time and became extremely large and flightless. At least 730 years ago, and maybe even earlier, the first humans arrived by boat. They came from Polynesia and built a society into a thriving Maori culture. Contact with European explorers occurred from at least the 1600s onwards. And by the 1800s, New Zealand became a British colony via the Treaty of Waitangi, a document that some say was used to inappropriately usurp Maori land. Most of the big birds had died out by this time. Significant European influences on agriculture and trade had begun to determine the details of local economics. Britain sent James Busby to New Zealand under the official title of British Resident. He set up a home and planted vine stock that he'd brought with him from Europe. Throughout the 1800s, 
Missionaries, as well as Dalmatian immigrants, brought some early grapevines to New Zealand and grew wine grapes for their personal consumption. Early speculators determined that some parts of New Zealand would be ideally suited for wine production. But following the World Wars, by the 1950s, a temperance movement held back a wine culture, but it didn't last too long. In the 1960s, laws began to change, allowing pubs to be open later and BYOB in restaurants. The current chapter of New Zealand wine really begins in the 1970s, and over the last 45 years, an explosion of plantings and expansions has taken place. One of the neatest things about the New Zealand wine scene is that, especially in comparison to other wine regions of about the same age, like California and Virginia, New Zealand has focused intently on regional identity and has swiftly located key varieties that work in particular regions. Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, for instance, Central Otago Pinot Noir. Now, the landscape is not entirely monochromatic. Each region grows other varieties, too. But you see a focus that other emerging wine regions tend to lack. In a wine region this young, you usually see a decades-long process of hit-and-miss experimentation, whereas in New Zealand, a clear picture of regional focus has come into play. In Central Otago, for instance, the oldest vineyards are about at that time when they reach their second vine generation where the oldest 30-ish-year-old vines could start to be replanted with young vines, if necessary. In most 30-ish-year-old wine regions, we'd still be identifying the proper varieties for the soil and climate. However, in central Otago, they are light years ahead and are well on their way to identifying distinct subregions with unique traits. Central Otago is beyond identifying grape varieties that work there, and they are honing in on the best clones. The winemakers there have forged alliances and set up an exchange of ideas with other Pinot Noir-producing regions in the world, such as Burgundy and California. If we focus in on just New Zealand's South Island, we'll see the systematic, organized approach throughout the wine regions. The South Island, it's dominated by the Southern Alps, a mountain range that burst upward with geologically recent tectonic plate movement. The Alps are full of ragged, sharp peaks not yet worn down by time and erosion. The Southern Alps marched their way down the west side of the entire South Island with relatively few passes. Even in the Wanaka climate, which is pretty continental, you can look up on a hot summer day and see snow-capped mountains in the distance. Because of these mountains, with the exception of Nelson, you'll find just about all of the wine regions on the east side of the island, and usually near the coast. In isolated Nelson, you'll find Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Riesling on the plains, and Pinot Noir up in the hills. Just east, you'll come to Marlborough, where Sauvignon Blanc reigns supreme. Head south about halfway down the island, and you hit another wine hotspot, Canterbury and Waipara Valley. Here, you'll find some of the world's great Pinot Noir, as well as some pretty exciting Riesling. And continue southward, you'll reach Central Otago, also known for Pinot Noir. From Otago, head to the coast and you'll reach the Waitaki Valley, which has some promising Pinot Noir and Riesling limestone sites. The red grape that really dominates the South Island is Pinot Noir, but this varietal focus produces anything but similar wines. Among the region, you'll find so much variation in Pinot Noir characteristics that you could go up and down the island for years tasting without getting bored. Teasing out the differences of Central Otago subregions is as interesting as comparing Pinot Noir from the Waipara Flats to the higher elevation areas. Waitaki is out doing its own unique thing, and up in Marlborough, 
some pretty awe-inspiring pinots can capture your imagination. But they're all different. In the U.S., it's difficult to be able to try the great Pinot Noirs of New Zealand, especially in a side-by-side context, because there aren't many places where you can find a large selection, and the best bottlings can be pricey after they've made the long journey. On most wine lists, you'll find a token New Zealand wine these days, but often the ones at the low and mid-range price points are larger production wines. But the soul-stirring New Zealand Pinots, though they be rare, and though they might be pricey or practically impossible to find, they're out there if you can get your hands on them. Keep listening to hear from one winemaker with a wealth of experience making South Island Pinot Noir. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand cp lynn of air one in new zealand on the show today hello sir how are you Good, thank you. You grew up in Taiwan. Yes, I was there for 13 years. And then my parents immigrated to New Zealand as part of their business migration. And we were you know, very much interested in New Zealand because the climate was temperate and it was an easygoing place. So we moved from Taiwan and invested some money in New Zealand and... I went to high school and university there. Were there a lot of Taiwanese immigrants to New Zealand? No, they weren't at the time. And even now, there's not that many. Uh, Taiwan is a very prosperous place. So unless you have a reason to go to New Zealand, you wouldn't. And we had a reason because my parents were very much, and my grandparents were very much interested in deer farming. So we were the first wave of investors and also farmers of deer in New Zealand. So New Zealand was very good for red deer, and we were very interested in deer farming at the time. So that was our primary investment in New Zealand, and that was the reason for us going there. Who were your classmates in school? I mean, what were they like when you were growing up? Um, They were actually very insular, because Christchurch was a very conservative city, and... um, when I was growing up, there wasn't really a lot of um, 
understanding of different cultures. So, you know, I would take, you know, salami sandwiches to school and the kids would be looking at it saying, what's that? What's that? You know, I'll take sushi to school. I mean, little do, do I, um, you know, imagine, you know, 30 years later, you know, sushi is one of the most popular lunch things in New Zealand, you know, or, or around the world for that matter. And so, you know, in 1984, when I was there, um, they would look at sushi, you know, dumbfounded, not sure what it is and why would I be eating raw fish and that kind of thing. So really times have changed since then. It was very, very different. What were your interests as a young man? Well, some of it was my parents' influence and they, for example, they wanted me to learn how to play the violin and how to play the piano. So I had to do that because they wanted me to do that. Not that I was very interested in it. But there were other things that I was interested in myself, like, you know, learning martial arts, you know, doing judo, aikido, jujitsu, that sort of stuff. And I, I was very interested in that sort of thing. So like young men would be. Yeah, yeah. And and for me it was great because it's something I can do. You know, I can do that very well. And, you know, the boy stuff like taking things apart, pretending you are MacGyver playing around with Swiss army knives and that kind of thing, setting things on fire to see, you know, what happens. You know, I, I remember one time I stuck a screwdriver into the socket, the electrical socket, just to see what happened. And of course, you know, the screwdriver sort of blew up a little bit. Um, but that sort of thing I used to do, you know, like all boys would do, you know. And at what age did you become blind? I became blind when I was between one and two years old, basically. I had... Um, retinoblastoma, and um, it's a very virulent cancer. And um, basically, the choice for my parents was remove the eyes or die, basically. So they, they chose that I should live and I should have my eyes removed, you know, which is, is great. And, um, you know, and my mother always said, you know, if I did not go blind, I would probably be either dead or in prison. So um, I guess being blind is a blessing. Um, because I, I would be too adventurous and probably take many, many, many risks. So I, I, um, I actually do look upon it as a restraint rather than a constraint. Um, so it's probably a good thing that happened to me. I probably wouldn't have been alive and talking to you today on uh, radio if I wasn't um, blind. So you are a bit of a risk taker. You know, when I was a young man and a boy, I was not cautious at all. I was... I. You know, I would do things just to find out what it feels like. You know, if if I want to see what it feels like to be on the 10-story building on top of the roof walking around, I would just go up there and do it. Um, and, you know, I would not think that if you fall off a 10-story building, you might die. I would just go and do it. So that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't do it now. I would be a lot more cautious now. So you went to school and what did you study in college? I started with electrical engineering. So electrical engineering was um, not something that I wanted to do, but I met a young couple on the beach and he was an electrical engineer and he had a very nice girlfriend. And so, you know, to my, you know, youthful mind, I thought, oh, if you do engineering, you would get um, nice-looking girlfriends. I so, think that's usually exactly how it works out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I thought, well, that's that's a good 
you know, and since I was very good at mathematics and science, you know, I was one of the top students in my class um, and in my school. So I, I thought, well, engineering would be easy. And it was easy, but I never enjoyed it. I absolutely hated it, actually. And I, I decided that I was not going to be an engineer. You know, doesn't matter what happens. I'm just not going to be an engineer. So I basically decided that I would switch to mathematics and finish the degree and not have anything to do with it since. And so I got a, my piece of paper saying that I have a mathematics degree and that was the end of it. I didn't, that was the shortest possible ending of some painful um, experience. Um, for me, it, you know, that part of my life was, I would say slightly wasted. Who was giving you guidance at that time? Uh, nobody. My parents, they didn't really help very much. They said, oh, you just go and do whatever you want to do, which is all very well and good. And some people would say that's great because, you know, parents are not interfering. But it also means that you are a free agent and you don't really know what you are doing at 18 years old. I mean, you know, 18-year-olds don't uh, make up their minds that easily and they, they can't really, you know, see the future as clearly. And so um, for me, it was, um, you know, difficult. And I... I basically, you know, that's why I thought the guy on the beach with the nice looking girl was a good model. Let's basically come down to the very basic like that. Did you encounter people who maybe didn't think options were available to you because of your blindness? Uh, yeah, I encountered that all the time. But I never really listened to that kind of dribble. You know, I, I never think that, well, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that. Of course, I'm also a realist. So... I never thought that I could be a, you know, brain surgeon or a, um, you know, um, commercial airline pilot or that kind of stuff. But, you know, within reason, I think a lot of things I could have done. And wine is definitely one of the more enjoyable ones. And I think it was a very good choice for me to get into. And how did that happen? What were some of the first steps in getting involved with wine? I never knew anything about wine until I was 19 years old. I, in Taiwan, most people drink scotch or cognac. And I knew a lot about scotch and cognac. I mean, I started drinking scotch when I was nine years old. And I, you know, it's a, it's a cultural thing in Taiwan that, you know, people drink cognac or scotch, even with dinner, even with food, they would drink that. And I never heard anything about wine. You know, I didn't even know wine was red or white. I thought wine was just, you know, some drink that no one ever drank. I think someone gave me a little bit of wine at a wedding that I went to in Taiwan. And I thought that was, you know, terrible. And I didn't even drink it. I just asked them for scotch instead. So, you know, for me, it was kind of something that I knew nothing about until I was 19. And then when I was at university, of course, what I was talking about, the boring engineering and the mathematics and so I joined a lot of social clubs at university. And one of the social clubs was Wine Tasting Club. And that's where I discovered this fantastic world called wine. You know, this world of wine is amazing because I discover I can smell it, I can taste it. Champagnes make noises, you know, when you pop them, when you pour them in the glass, and they, they fizz and sizzle, and they're fantastic. And I thought, well, you know, this is outrageous. And not only that, I would drink a glass and I would remember the taste. 
and I can describe it weeks later, years later. You know, I can remember. Oh, this is the aroma of Sauvignon Blanc, and this is aroma of Pinot Noir, and you know, Chardonnay with oak is like this, and Chardonnay without oak is like that, and Chablis is from here, and you know, Merceau is from there, and and that kind of thing. And so, to me, that was just amazing, and I got really hooked the first time I. I went to a wine tasting, you know, and I never looked back. Basically, I, uh, you know, had my first wine tasting. And I thought, yeah, this is what it's all about. What I've been searching for. I thought, well, this is quite something, and I, I got really into it. Basically, I, I went to more tastings and more tastings, and I read and I discovered and I talked to people who make wine, and I, I want to go and visit places that have wine, and I went to wine shops and. You know, I did everything possible to get as much information as possible, because it was both sensory and intellectual, and you appreciated both of those aspects. Exactly, that's precisely. I mean, I I like the intellectual part of it, and I like the sensory part of it. And in the beginning, it was sensory. In the middle, was intellectual, and now it's sensory again. And um, intellectual part of it is very exciting, but. You always have to come back to wine as a drink, as pleasure. And you know, if I intellectualize it too much, then it becomes mathematics and engineering again, which I then I would hate it again. So I realize I have to enjoy it again. So you know, I turn the volume down on the in the intellectual part, and turn the volume up in the enjoyment part, and then it becomes very good again. So you pursued going to winemaking school, and what was that experience like for you? There was a lot of discrimination. Um, try to apply to wine school. Um, there was people saying, "Oh, you know, you can't do it. You know, there's no way you can do this and that." And I remember my first wine class, and we had to introduce ourselves and say the reason that we are there. I stood up and I said, "You know, my name is C.P. Lin. I want to make the best Pinot Noir in New Zealand." And quite a few people in my class laughed at me for saying that. And、um, Of course, they they don't laugh now because you know I proved myself. So it took a lot of persuasion. My lecturers didn't like me because they thought I was not someone that they、um, you know should be teaching. The funniest thing is, about five years ago, I was at the university that studied wine science, and in the foyer of the entrance to the university was a photo of me and the article of me. Saying this is what we can produce at our university. Look how much we have achieved. Look at this guy; he's the best winemaker, and you know he's from our school. And I'm thinking,、huh, I wish they had said that when I actually got into the、um, class. And in the beginning, I would have had so much better experience.、Um, but of course, they didn't. And、um, but now they are thinking that I am the the best example of of their university. And、um, you know, I get quite annoyed with that. And You know, they didn't even ask my permission for using my photo or the article that was written about me. How long were you there? I was there for a year. Did a postgraduate diploma in wine science. Of course, I didn't have to do a full degree because I already have a degree of mathematics. So that was useful because it shortened my experience at university for wine science, and and I just want to leave and go and make wine. Because you know the books don't teach you how to make wine, you know they don't show you which end the pump is the inlet and which is the outlet. You know, let alone all the other stuff. So, you know, when I have interns working for me, 
Um, it's very amusing. You know, they have university degrees, but they don't know which way to switch the pump on and how to, you know, clean the barrel and things like that. Um, so you had to do that by doing it. And I did. I went and worked all around the world. I did a lot of vintages, a lot of harvests. I did them, you know, in Europe, in the States, in Australia, in New Zealand. So, you know, I traveled a lot and I worked a lot and I learned a lot. So what are the keys to dealing with winemaking when you don't have vision to rely on? So, I mean, I have a very clear idea in my head of what should happen to that wine. I don't know where I learned it or if I have just absorbed it without knowing it, but I know what to do, you know, with the grapes that I taste in the vineyard. I have an idea straight away of what should be done. And so I plan it out. And then in the beginning, when I was, uh, you know, a novice and learning, I would do everything. I would clean the barrels, clean the tanks, because I don't trust other people to do it for me. And I know I can do it better than most. So I would just do it. But now I can sort of say to people, well, I would like you to do this or do that. Because, you know, when I have contract winemaking facilities doing stuff for me, I'm still a little bit dubious about their thoroughness to do the right thing. But now I can't really do everything for them because they are the contract winemakers and they carry out the process. So even their washing barrels or their cleaning tanks or their press regime, I can determine what it is and I can say what it is. But whether they carry it out or not, that I don't know. You know, I just hope that they would carry it out as per my instructions. And if they do, it will show up in the wine. But if they don't, it will not show up in the wine. So, And that's tasteable. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can tell if what you had said to the contract winemaker has been carried out because it would show you, you know, whatever it might be, you would be able to see that in the wine and say, ah, something did not get done or, or something got done very well. How did you go about seeking out a winemaking job? Well, I didn't. I actually started my wine career in wine sales. Um, when I graduated from university in wine science, I wanted to sell wine because I wanted people to have the same experience as me, you know, discovering the world of wine. So I, I started a wine exporting business. I had 35 or so New Zealand wineries on my portfolio. With a friend of mine from university, we started selling wine to Northeast Asia because for my parents' business, I had some contacts there. So we tried to sell wine to Japan, to Taiwan, to Singapore, to Hong Kong, that sort of place. But, you know, that didn't last very long because the economic crisis of 97, early 98, starting in South Korea, influenced the Asian development in Northeastern Asia. So overnight, there was no purchasing of wine anymore. So from selling, you know, reasonable quantities of wine and making good money, overnight, there was no income. There was no one ordering any wine. There was just a, a complete shutdown. So I had to do, look for something else to do, but I didn't really want to do just anything. So I was, um, you know, feeling a little bit morose and I 
I stayed at home, smoked cigars and drank scotch and, um, you know, didn't know what to do with myself, basically. Did that for a few months and then one day a university friend rang me up and said, oh, do you want to go to, um, you know, this place for lunch? This is a, quite a, a nice place in Waipara. And I said, well, you know, no, not really. And she said, well, you know, it's only lunch. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, you have to um, give a speech or anything. And uh, I said, well, maybe, you know, I'll come along. And so I went along and the owners at the time, Michael and Buffy, Eaton, they were very interesting people. They were very artistic. And Buffy was doing the cooking and Michael was doing the serving. And they were just newly retired and they wanted to start a vineyard and a winery. And so I was there having lunch. I still remember what I ate. It was asparagus followed by salmon, followed by creme caramel with bananas. And, you know, I, I remember things like that. So I was talking about wine to the friends. They were there with me. There were 14 of us having lunch at the long table. And Michael overheard me say something about wine and he he said, oh, so um, you know about wine, do you? I said, yeah, no, just some, you know, I'm interested as an amateur, but I do know something about wine. And he said, well, I tell you what, you do want to try our wine because, you know, we, we just released this um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And I said, yeah, yes, yes, that will be great. You know, I'd love to taste your wines. And so um, they um, had the 96 Pinot Noir and the 96 Chardonnay for me to try. And this is Mumford. Exactly, yeah. So I tried them, and I, I said to Michael, um, actually, I didn't say anything in the beginning. And then he went to the kitchen and said to Buffy, well, that guy there, he didn't say anything. He just tried the wine, didn't say anything. So at the end of the lunch, he asked me what I thought. And, you know, being sort of young and brash, I said, no, they were crap. They're not good. And then he just ignored me basically after that because, you know, you know, what's this guy? You know, why is he saying that these wines are no good? So then I went for a walk in the vineyards with my friends to digest the lunch. And um, then we come back to the house where the lunch was served. And I smelled these cigar aromas. And I said, oh, who is smoking the Cuban cigar? And then Michael said, well, how do you know it's Cuban? I said, well, it's very nutty and it's a sweetness. There's a slightly woody sort of hint. It must be a Monte Cristo. And he said, yeah, it's a Monte Cristo number five. And I said, well, you know, that's great. That's a, that's a good cigar. And he said, do you want one? And I said, yes, it'll be fantastic. So he, he gave me one and we sat down and we smoked the cigar. And he said, okay, so obviously you know about smells and taste and you mean our wine is no good. And I said, yeah, your wine's no good. You know, it's drinkable, but it's not great. And, um, and and he said, well, can you do better than that? And I said, yes, I think so. You know, being young and brash, I said, yeah, yeah, of course I can. You know, why not? And so he said, right, well, you come back next harvest and you see what you can do. And I did. And there was um, the beginning of a very good and, you know, long friendship and relationship for my winemaking. And I did prove myself, you know, I made year after year, very good wines for them. And so I was very pleased about that. What was your relationship with Michael like over the years? Oh, fantastic. I mean, he and I get on, still get on very well. They sold the business in 2007 and the new owners 
I don't get on with at all. And so um, I don't have a good relationship with those people. But uh, Michael and Buffy, I have very good relationship with. And we still, you know, see them every month or so. And we still drink a lot of good wines together. And how many vintages were you at Mumford? Oh, I was there. My first vintage was 98. My last vintage was 2013. So I guess um, 16 vintages. And in that time, I also worked in Australia, in the States, and in Europe as well. So I have clocked up a lot of vintages now. Some years, I did three vintages at a time. I would go to Australia, then do New Zealand, and then come up to Europe or United States for Northern Hemisphere. So, you know, there's a few years I would be doing three harvests per year. And what are particular vintages and harvests that really stand out in your mind? Yeah, I guess that the two most outstanding in experience-wise, and experience can be good or bad, but they did teach me a lot about the wine world and winemaking. And those two vintages are six years apart, and they're both in Oregon. This first vintage was um, working with Steve Carey at M Hill Valley Vineyards in Oregon. That was in 1999. And the second time was for Eric Lemelson in 2005. Very different places, very different people, very different wines, but learned a lot, good and bad. Um, How so? But um, the good is, you know, comparing New Zealand and Oregon and how different we are. And the bad was some, you know, personal um, development and some, you know, relationships with the owners and with the people who work there and, you know, the, the, um, the differences that people have about wine and how they look at wine. And I'm a perfectionist and I, I have a strong understanding of the world of wine. So when I apply that to people who are a little bit more insular, who doesn't understand the world of wine, but only their region or only their minor um, little appellations, then, um, you know, clashes can happen. And when you try to say to them, well, we are not making this wine to please Oregonians. We are making this wine so that you can be proud when you put this wine against Burgundy or New Zealand or Australia or Switzerland or Germany. Um, this is what you want. You don't want to make a, a wine that is just for your neighbors. You know? So you should not be looking at your region. You should be looking at the whole world. Um, so what are the differences between New Zealand and Oregon? New Zealand and Oregon, uh, the Pinot Noir growing areas are climatically quite similar. Oregon has more rain. New Zealand has less rain. But overall, it's very similar. It's a high latitude, long sunshine hours if the rain is not blocking the sunshine, that is. And when I first went to Oregon, I felt that they were more advanced than New Zealand in a lot of things. But when I went back the second time, I thought New Zealand had gone such a long way that Oregon hasn't caught up. And so it's a very interesting experience to have six years apart and yet such a huge difference between the improvements in viticulture, in winemaking, in all areas. And what do you attribute that to? That's a quick change. It is a quick change. I think New Zealand being new migrants it's an island in the far south of the Pacific. 
we tend to want to improve ourselves very quickly and and try to catch up with the world and try to show that little New Zealand can do better or as good as the world. And so um, people are more willing to just grab something from the world and actually apply it and quickly change. What were some of the changes you made at Mumford over the years? Well, I introduced, um, you know, many colonial selection, selection massage, get new rootstocks, new clones in, planted high density, isolated the ground for some of the vineyards with limestone, with different types of limestone, with different pH, with different aspect, uh, with different slope, degrees of slope, and so on and so forth. Using different types of barrels, different coopers, using different punch-down tools, different techniques, and different size fermenters. Little steps, but many, many little ones. And they all matter. They all make a difference. And what are the growing conditions in Waipara? It's dry. It's all very like, um, you know, a long season because it's a maritime climate. It's a dry and warm place during the growing season. You know, long growing season. We start in September and we harvest in April. You know, whereas in Burgundy, you would start in May and harvest in September. So we have a longer season. And that's why, you know, our wines have higher alcohol because we have a longer accumulation season we never have to chaptalize and if you chaptalize it's deliberate for glycerol production rather than for alcohol production so you know there's all these differences that we we have and oregon is the same you know higher the chill sunshine um higher alcohol higher accumulation of sugar except you know we don't get the rain that oregon gets central otago the rainfall is a lot lighter and what's the soil type like in Waipara? Oh, many different soil types. I mean, there's river gravel, there's the river terraces with clay mixed with gravel. And then, of course, on the side, on the eastern sea slopes, there are calcareous soil, limestone mixed with clay. It's not quite argilo calcare because argilo calcare has the broken pieces mixed in with the clay. We tend to have more solid limestone foundation structure and the roots actually have to dig themselves through this and the clay is very hard it's not a pliable clay because the clay has loose um, from glacial deposit mixed with the clay so when the clay dries it's as hard as cement it cracks and it's very hard i remember when my first guide dog odie died we had to dig a grave and it took my father and I with um, very sharp um, shovels about an hour to dig a grave deep enough to bury um, Odie. So you can imagine, you know, two grown men with two shovels taking an hour to dig a grave for a dog. Um, that's very, very hard clay. So that must mean that planting new vines is somewhat difficult. Uh, you use an oil drill to drill holes. You use an oil drill? Yes. So we take an oil drill and we drill holes and then we put the vine in, and then we take it with um, loose soil. Yeah, it's, it's hard work, very, very hard work. And especially if you have steep slopes, it's even harder work. But have you experienced physically challenging, dangerous situations? I mean, have there been, you know, because occasionally the world of wine, someone falls into a tank. Never, actually. I never injured myself in a winery. And um, 
I can tell you there are many people who have seen me do very dangerous things in the winery. Um, and they were surprised that I can do them. The first day I was at the and Eric, he said to me, oh, you know, I would like you to come work at the Mosen, but it's a three-story gravity-fed winery, so it might be a little bit tricky. I said, no problem. You just give me half a day and I'll be all right after that. I'll, I'll be able to walk up and down the stairs and, you know, do everything that you um, need to do. So I went there and I took a tour um, of the winery with the, one of the assistant winemakers. And um, I got a picture, the map of the winery, um, and I knew what it looks like in my head. And then I was, you know, running up and down the steps and doing things after that. And Adam Campbell from Alcove came around to see Eric. And Adam said to Eric, I thought you said that you got this blind guy to be your consultant winemaker. And Eric said, yeah, yes, it's, it's a blind guy. He comes here, he's working. And, um, and Adam said, well, I don't see any blind guys around anywhere. And he said, it's that guy over there. And Adam goes, no, he just ran down the steps just before. He can't be blind. Um, he was running down the steps. And Eric said, no, he is. And so I, I had to convince Adam Campbell that I was actually blind. So that was quite interesting. You know, I can hear where things are, you know, if, if they are overhanging objects or something like this. And that is all processed very quickly as I was walking around. You know, when I walk around, you'll be processing this information. And also when I'm working in a big winery, of course, I ask my crew not to leave things around there on the floor that I might, um, you know, not know where they are. If I know where they are, that's fine. But if they leave something that I'm not expecting them to be there, then, you know, I might bump into it. But then again, I might not because I might be able to hear it. So I might not bump into it. It's just that I ask them to not deliberately leave things around. But yeah, to answer your question, in my 20 years of winemaking, I have never injured myself. No injuries. I injured myself a lot more in martial arts. I've broken hands and broken fingers from fighting, but not from um, making wine. And what about that wine? What about what you've learned over the years with Pinot Noir? I think the challenges that we have still is searching out the best lands um, still for Pinot Noir. New Zealand is a farming country. It's based on agriculture and horticulture. And it tends to have the tendency to, to plant things everywhere. Um, whatever ground they can find, they will plant things. And that's not a bad thing. That's what the monks used to do. But they had thousands of years rather than tens of years. So, um, you know, we still have to search out for the best land to grow this or to grow that. And also to develop that sense of richness. And that is, you know, time, you know, the history, the, the mystique, you know, and um, that will come, of course, with time. But the challenges in the technical side and in the viticultural side is as good as anywhere. That's not a problem anymore. You know, people are doing all the things that other people from all around the world are doing. And so I guess the only things that we have to overcome is to get people to understand New Zealand, to know where it is, to drink the wines and enjoy the wines, and 
to realize that there's a country far away from here that actually makes extremely good Pinot Noirs. And how did you get involved with the Air One project? Air One project was after my troubles with the new owners at Mountford. And we have started small. I mean, I don't even have a bottle of Air One in my house. It's a rare wine and I, it's not something that you know I uh, have blended and put together lightly and um, shows all the characters that New Zealand Pinot Noir have. Um, it gives you a collage of, of what New Zealand Pinot Noir can offer you. If a young winemaker were to come to you today and ask you what they should keep in mind throughout the course of their career, what would you tell them? Um, I'll tell them two things. I would say to them, you should always do what you like, not what you are good at. And those two things might not be the same. And if they are the same, then you are very lucky. So, you know, a lot of people, they do something because they are good, but they don't enjoy it. They, they hate things that they are good at. I am one of those, you know, I am very good with mathematics, but I don't want to be a scientist or engineer. I want to be a winemaker. And so for me, that is something that definitely I would say to the young person to keep in mind, just do what you like. And if you like that thing, you would ultimately get good at it. You don't have to do something that you are good at that you don't enjoy. And I think the other thing um, I would say to them is, you know, when you make a wine, don't think about numbers. Think about the people that are going to drink that wine. Machines like numbers. People don't. People drink wine. They don't drink numbers. So for me, the pleasure of the wine is the ultimate goal. C.P. Lin of Air One wants to make wines that people enjoy. Thank you very much for being here today. <laughs> Thanks. C.P. Lin of Air One in New Zealand. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. So you'd rather be known as an excellent winemaker than an excellent blind winemaker. That's right. Exactly.